Thank you for tuning in. My prayer is that this message is going to be an encouragement to you personally and will cause great growth in your life. It's time to live and it's time to take this next step forward. God bless you as you listen. All right. Well, I'd love for you to get your notes out, Bibles, Bible apps, and open your Bibles up to the book of 2 Corinthians. That's 2 Corinthians, not 2 Chronicles. Those are two very different places in the Bible. New Testament, near the end of the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. And I'm going to refer to this here in just a moment. I want you to see this passage. It's, it's incredible. Hey, my message title today, write this down. It's called Living on the Edge. Living on the Edge. You know what? I, I want my life to count, don't you? Yeah, I, I actually just want to live on the edge. Not, not here on the edge of the platform like I'm ready to fall off. But I, want, I, I used to, a long time ago, when I first started preaching, I, I, I would get up to the edge of the platform. The church I was at was huge, and, and, and we had like seven steps up there. And I would get on the edge like this, and people would say, we can't handle it. We're afraid you're going to fall. So I learned, always take a step back from the edge of the stage. But I like living on the edge. And I want to talk to you about that today because... I want my life to count. You know, when I'm on the edge, I think one of the, the, the places that come to mind is the Grand Canyon. Uh, how many of you guys have been to the Grand Canyon? I, I've taken each of my three sons to the Grand Canyon, Preston, Devin, and Ian, and, and uh, we did it uh, right after their 12th birthdays for each one of them, and, uh, and I did it, it was something that, that I called a man trip, and so we, we packed our supplies, and, and, and we camped, and we went to the remote north rim of the Grand Canyon. How many of you guys have been to the north rim? How many north rimmers? Oh, look at you guys. Yes, of course, yeah, yes. So have you taken your, I'm sorry, but not many people go to the north rim. Have you taken the Airstream there? You guys are, you, I like y'all. All right, we're going we're gonna to tell some good North Rim stories. That's just a tiny place up there. But I love it. Uh, tent camping at, at 13,000 feet, uh, camping about 100 yards from the rim of the Grand Canyon. Uh, it was powerful, memorable time for us. And, uh, and we would go in, at the beginning of June each year. Uh, and, and, you know, just let me tell you, uh, the, the North Rim of the Grand Canyon is quite chilly in, in June. It, it really is. Uh, in fact, Devin and I, we got caught in a snow snowstorm up on the mountain. <laughs> it was there. And even the weight of the snow, it went from like 70 degrees to below 30 in about two hours time. It was a crazy thing. Never seen anything like it. Only happens on a mountain, you know. But, uh, but the, the snow all like caused our, our, our tent to, to collapse. It was crazy. But you know what? Each one of those trips, I would just enjoy with each one of my sons individually several days of, of hiking and relaxing and enjoying the clean yet thin mountain air, the aroma of pine, you know, we just, when you're up there, you just feel like you're a million miles away from everyone and everything, and it's not real touristy there either. Uh, everything familiar is kind of like gone. Uh, I, I, uh, I even, I love it so much, I even took all three of my sons there about five years ago, and we did another uh, man trip where we, where we, we did some, out, some uh, backcountry hiking and camping for a few days and down into the canyon, and, and it was some extreme stuff. Uh, that's, those are when I actually, I have my best stories from that. But you know what? Every time I've been there, I've had to come back to the city. But every time I've come back to the city, it's like I bring a piece of what happened to me on that mountain, I bring it back to the city with me. And here's the deal. Honestly, I think the church should be the same way. We come here and we experience this atmosphere and this presence of God, and it's not unlike 
the north rim of the Grand Canyon. And then we take it right back into the heart of the city. You know, whenever we leave here, whenever we leave here, we walk back into uh, a culture that envelops us. And there's a lot of negativity and hostility in that culture. And, and we have a choice. Are we going to carry the life of God in us, what we even receive here on Sunday mornings, are we going to carry that with us into the culture or are we just going to leave it here? I mean, are we going to take the presence of God with us into the city? And I hope your answer to that is a hearty yes. <laughs> now I want you to look in your Bible, 2 Corinthians 2.14. Now, now, if you're a city lifer, you've definitely heard this before that we measure our success not by what happens inside the walls, but what happens outside the walls. And, uh, and, and Paul was, was talking about this in this passage of Scripture. He was writing to the ancient Greek uh, port city of Corinth, and he was describing how this works of us working in culture. And I like it. Here you are, 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved that's us, <laughs> and those who are perishing. That's those who have not yet given their lives to Christ. You know, back in those times where when a city had won a battle or, or an area, a region had won a battle or a war against another area, uh, what they would do is they would take the captives, they would take those captives with them and they would march them through the center of town in a triumphal procession showing off their victory. That's, that's what they did. So the captives would be there kind of marching down the middle of the street and everybody would be cheering. Well, it's interesting because 2 Corinthians 2.14, 2 Corinthians 2, it, it actually uses that same imagery that those people would have been very familiar with, saying, but we're kind of like that, saying that we are led by Christ in a triumphal procession through the middle of town and we are his captives. Now, I hope you caught that when we read the scripture. And I think that's a little bizarre. I don't see myself as a captive or a prisoner. But you are. You're a captive. You're a prisoner. And you're a prisoner to hope. It's just what we sang about. I've shared this with you many, many times. But we're like, we're, we're like chained up to hope. <laughs> that's just what gives us life. We're prisoners of hope, and God puts his prisoners of hope on display in the heart of the city. Think about it. And then he goes on to say that we really have this duty, and it's to release the fragrance and the aroma of Jesus everywhere. Wherever we go, we keep the scent of God coming out of us. Now, that, my friend, is living on the edge. Really, that's just it. I mean, it's, it's bringing that fragrance and being that fragrance of Christ in the culture. So here's my challenge is I want you to get out on the edge and I want you to live a little. Spread the fragrance of Jesus. You're a prisoner of hope and that is your destiny. It is, your destiny is not to be discouraged and defeated and to be a prisoner of hell. No, 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 no. You have hope and that hope flows through your veins and that hope beams out of your system. 
In fact, our theme scripture for the year speaks of it very well. I want you to look at this. It's on the screens, Isaiah 40, 31. Will you read this with me, please? Come on, say it out loud with me. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. I want you to say it better than that. Come on. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. Bam. That is talking about us. All right? It's talking about you. You don't want to live your life beat down anymore, do you? No, it's time to live on the edge. It's time to soar and run and walk and have that, that strength of God coming up, coming up behind you to lift you up. You know, when we were at the north rim of the Grand Canyon, uh, I really, really had always longed to see this special bird, and Devin and I got to see it on our trip. It's called the California condor, and it is a bird that has a 12-foot wingspan, second largest bird in the world, largest in North America, but very, very seldom are seen, but they're around that area. We were just sitting on the rim, and we saw one of these condors, and I said, there it is, Devin, it's what we've been talking about, it's what we wanted to see. We were just, we just saw it begin to take off from the rim, and would just float on the air. You see, the air is rushing up out of the canyon, and it picks up those huge birds, and they just seem to float and go in circles effortless, effortlessly. It's one of the most beautiful sights I've ever seen. It's like God just put that huge bird on display for the world to see, to see how they can soar when you allow the wind just to carry you away. You know why they soar? It's they soar because they live on the edge. They catch that updraft of, from the canyon. That's what lets them soar. And that's what Isaiah chapter 40 verse 31 promises us is because God is like a spirit. He's like a wind and it gives us strength. Wind under our wings. Wind that that gives us a a tailwind so we can run better, so we can walk better, so we can move better. So living on the edge, it gives us three types of strength. Here it is. Strength to soar, strength to run, and strength to keep walking. That is how God empowers you to live. Now, here's the question. How are you going to make that useful? It's like, okay, pastor, that's good. How are you going to make that useful? I mean, what, what, how can we actually take this and, and allow the fragrance of Christ to work through us? Well, Preston's going to talk to us practically about how that works. So will you welcome Mr. Preston back? All right. Thank you, Dad. All right. Living on the edge. Does anybody enjoy weddings? Any fans of enjoying and attending weddings? I love weddings. Weddings are, uh, are an enjoyable experience for me, especially recently. And I'm going to tell you about the first time I had a date to a wedding, a date that wasn't my mom. And it happened just a couple, uh, just almost two years ago. And it was with a young woman by the name of Dakota Armenta. And I was excited, elated for this, for this I, I call it a date. And we, we were heading on this date, maybe our, our third or fourth date. And a little does she know that I actually RSVP'd us for this wedding, a plus one, before I even asked her out. That's called faith in action, y'all. <laughs> there we were on our way to a wedding on our date and on the side of the road, we see that there are a couple cars that had recently got into some sort of altercation or accident. And as we drew closer, there was a silver car that was smashed into the median and also this white van uh, that had smashed uh, against the wall and these, and these uh, men began to pile out. 
as we got closer, we saw that inside the car was a young lady and no one had stopped and no one was coming over to her. So we briefly and quickly pulled to the side of the road and we saw that she, this lady was in tears and I, and I, I jumped out of the car and I said, baby, let me, let me check on, check on her. And, and, and I, I ran over to her and opened up the door and, and, and this, this young lady is just crying and, and uh, tears are filling her eyes and, and she's holding her wrist and she's crying in pain over her wrist and, and she's, then she's holding her hip and, and I'm asking her where, where it hurts and what's going on and, and I ask, can I pray for you? And she says, yes. And I begin to, I get, begin to pray for her and, and, uh, and, and then I step back after I pray for her and I said, let me, uh, let me make sure that someone's coming for you and I'm gonna call the paramedics or whatever needs to happen. And I look up and I see those guys are still just kind of looking around and and all of a sudden I hear my wife come behind me and not my wife at the but she's my girlfriend at the time but she's my wife now praise Jesus for that she comes behind me and she 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 jumps in and and she goes and she starts to take care and tend to the lady and I had half expected her to just kind of hang in the car and let me handle the situation and I look over and I see the guys in the van. They're like, uh, they're looking at the van. And they're like, oh God, our van. And the lady in the car, she's like, oh God, my wrist. And Dakota's like, oh God, would you heal her? And I'm thinking, oh God, I'm in love. <laughs> and here's the thing. What distinguishes us as followers of Jesus is not how we behave when everything is going good. It's how we behave when everything is going wrong. And we find Daniel in scripture in a similar place. And Daniel, if you have your Bibles, you can go with me to Daniel chapter five, verse 12. Daniel chapter five, verse 12. And let me give you a historical context on what's happening. This is the nation of Judah. Judah, and primarily the story takes place in Jerusalem under King Jehoiakim in about 597 BC. Jehoiakim was an arrogant king. Uh, he was a king who was, would go with the highest bidder. And Je Jehoiakim had loyalties ba to Babylon, but uh, split his loyalties and decided to stop paying tribute to Babylon, banking that Egypt would help conquer or destroy this Babylonian kingdom or oppressor. And uh, unfortunately or for Jehoiakim, uh, uh, Egypt was conquered and Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar march on Jerusalem, about 597 BC. Well, what happens is they take siege over this city. Trade is blocked and days become weeks, weeks become months. Oftentimes months even become years. We don't know how long exactly, but what we do know is that the people began to run out of food. And Daniel watched as many of his friends that he grew up with starting from the poorest, began to die from starvation. And many of the people who called themselves friends or neighbors turned to cannibalism. It was terrible. I can imagine what Daniel would have thought and wondering, where is God? And all of a sudden, one day, the walls are breached and the Babylonian soldiers come marching in, slaughtering and killing many of the Judean soldiers. And to Daniel's horror, he sees, likely as one of the Babylonian officials waves his hand and gives permission to the men to begin to rape the women and plunder. And you can imagine, these are mothers, these are daughters. And Daniel feeling abandoned, feeling frustrated and probably so angry at this nation. And it gets worse as they begin to line up 
the inhabitants like cattle and pick out the best and the brightest and the most influential and march them on a long, treacherous walk all the way to the city of Babylon, isolating them from their friends, family, culture, and everything they ever knew. This was ultimate shame. Did Daniel have a wife? We don't really know for sure, but what we do know is Daniel was isolated and alone with a few, uh, a few other uh, Judean officials. Now to work for an oppressor. We find this passage in Daniel, Daniel chapter 5, verse 12, and this just is to give you a snapshot of the brutality that is Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what happens when Daniel begins to serve. Scripture says, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve problems, were found in Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. The king was having a dream and couldn't figure out the meaning of it, didn't trust his satraps or his interpreters or his magicians, and they said, who, he said, who's going to interpret this dream? And one of the officials came and said, there's this guy who behaves a little bit different than anybody else. There's this guy who's kind of risen among the other officials, uh, the nobles of the nations that we've conquered. And his name's Daniel. But what's interesting about Daniel, and this is him talking to King Nebuchadnezzar, literally the king of the world in a sense, saying, he's just got this spirit of excellence about him. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but he's different. He's your guy. And I'm going to read to you in Daniel chapter 6, verse 3. Many, 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 many years later, the kingdom of Babylon is conquered by Darius in the kingdom of Persia. And we see in Daniel chapter 6, verse 3, Daniel begins to rise to the top again. So we know it's not by chance. Daniel chapter six, verse three. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents, satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king, Darius, the king over the known world, planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So what was it about this Daniel? Daniel, he became distinguished not because of his culture, not because of his race, his background. Daniel became distinguished because of, be, of a behavior. Daniel became distinguished because of a spirit of excellence. What Daniel did, he did well. And the way Daniel behaved was different than everyone else around him. Why? Why would Daniel serve and rise and seek the well-being of an oppressor. Here's what Daniel knew. Daniel knew that if I don't, someone else will. And if I rise and I can influence this king, I can protect the well-being of my people. Daniel did, and he had a larger perspective than many of us live with. And what do we call that here around city life and the way that we, we, we treat people and, and the environment and the feeling that you get when you walk in this room? Many of us, we've distinguished it and called it as vibrant servanthood. Back then, it's a spirit of excellence, but today, it's a vibrant servanthood. What is vibrant servanthood? How do you know? Are you a person of vibrant servanthood? And it's known by this behavior. We are the first to spring into action on an opportunity to serve. City lifers, followers of Jesus, 
We are the first to spring into action on an opportunity to serve. Kids in, in Brazil who need school, who need food, who need opportunity, city lifers, we're the first to spring into action. In this city, when there's issue, when there's a car on the side of the road, I pray that we become the people that are not the second, not the third, but the first to spring into action on an opportunity to serve. When we live like that, like Daniel, we can just fathom or imagine how our lives are going to be elevated. Uh, why, why do we serve? I mean, how do you fuel that? Well, the truth be told, you know, you're asking Preston, how does that fuel? Well, every behavior is often a byproduct of an internal belief. So what is the belief that fuels the behavior of vibrant servanthood? It's the same thing Daniel knew. The same thing that we must remember every single moment of every single day. And it's this. Today is less about me than I think it is. There is freedom that comes when you know and you believe that your life is not about you. When life's not about you, you're not looking to be served. And those expectations aren't there. Then your frustrations go away. And a whole lot of us, I would, you know what? I would be a whole lot happier if I really believed that today, every single day was less about me than I thought it was. When life's not about you, guess what? It gets to be about other people. What would happen if we became a church like that? That was the life Daniel lived. Daniel knew it wasn't about me. It's about the people that I'm serving. It's about my nationality. It's about my heritage. It's about my legacy. It's about the men and women and children that their lives are at stake. But I have the opportunity to rise and to serve because it's not about me. Will you help me welcome dad? Come back right, as he closes right. out the message. You know, I, I like that, uh, thinking about it not being about you. Um, because it not only works out there on the streets, but it works in the home. This weekend, uh, you know, our, our church, you know, this, this is a fun church, man. I, I tell you, people get married like all over the place. Uh, but th- this weekend, Chris and Alex are getting married. Uh, Richard and Gabby are getting married. And uh, I'm not going to Richard and Gabby's wedding because it's in Greece or something like that. But, but um, as I was, as I was uh, doing the rehearsal for Chris and Alex, and you know, I, I, yesterday afternoon, I, I just started thinking about the two weddings this weekend. I just started thinking about all of the hours and preparation time that we went into with, with those couples and the council. And, and, uh, and I just thought, you know what? The, the, the thing that makes these relationships work is neither one of these couples, and, and now there's not one individual in any of these couples that just makes it all about themselves. See, because a marriage only survives when both parties practice vibrant servanthood toward each other. That mutually serving each other creates a healthy, vibrant relationship. It does. Marriage can never be about yourself and all about your needs. Yeah, you have needs, but here's the deal. When you focus on the needs of the other person and both people are doing that, the marriage is successful. And, and that, is, that is the primary key for success in a marriage. And it works in marriage, but it, it works in life in general. You know, if you decide to not get out and live on the edge, 
try to just stay way back and stay safe from everything. I'll just tell you something. You want to stay safe from serving other people and you don't want to do the vibrant servanthood thing, I want to be candid with you. I'm a pastor. I just want to tell you the truth. There are consequences. There are consequences to this so-called safe life, self-oriented life. Because when you're doing that, that's where you'll experience rejection. That's where you're going to experience isolation. That's where you're going to find that you just really don't seem to have identity. Who am I? (laughs) And most certainly the fragrance of Jesus is not being released because you just want it all for yourself. That's being (laughs) self-centered. But I'm not going to let you settle for that. I'm going to poke you and prod you and lead you and urge you to live on the edge with vibrant servanthood. The excuses to just live for yourself, uh, you know, that, that, that's the, those are the things that's going to keep you away from the edge, you know. The, the self, uh, safe, this safe, self-centered life, the excuses that come with it is like, well, you know, I don't want to just get out there and do that. I mean, life is hard. You know, life is hard. Like, yeah, it's hard. I mean, welcome to life. We all, it's hard, okay? But life is hard, or I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired. Uh, or, or, you know, another one of those excuses is like, well, what's the benefit? What's in it for me? If something's not in it for me, I don't want a part of it. Well, you know what? That's, that, that's all the self-destructive stuff. Another one is like, well, if I get out there and start getting around other people and serving others, people might find, you know, about the truth about me, or people might find out about a flaw or a weakness I have, or... I just don't know if I can do that. But those excuses will only lead you to more self-centeredness, more rejection, more isolation, less identity, and you're certainly not going to be releasing the fragrance of Jesus. You want to live on the edge? Here's the way to do it. Change the way you believe. You have to begin to think different before you can get out on the edge. Before I could get out on the edge of the Grand Canyon, I had to think different because I'm scared of heights. <laughs> you have to think different. Think different about it before you get out there. And um, you just begin to believe different. And the belief is really this. It's just to begin to believe that your hope is in the Lord. Your hope is not in yourself. You're not all that, okay? Change your belief. Begin to believe what Preston said. Today is less about me than I think it is. Believe that. That changes your behavior. Begin to live on the edge. You're going to exude this fragrance of vibrant servanthood. It's going to start in your home. It's going to be happening here in the church. It's going to be at work. It's going to be in the community. I encourage you to simply be the difference that you were transformed to be. What is God telling you you need to do specifically today? What is it? What is it? What is it? What is that selfless act that you need to begin to initiate even today? God, I pray for everyone who's hearing my voice right now. I pray that vibrant servanthood will begin to flow from us the way it flowed from Daniel (laughs) with that spirit of excellence. God, 
understanding that we are prisoners of hope so we can, we can soar, we can run, we can walk with confidence and you're going to be the wind beneath us and give us that strength that we need so that we can fulfill everything you desire for us. What is it? What is it, church? What is it? What is it? What is it that you're gonna step out and begin to do as a vibrant servant of God? I'm going to give you about 10 seconds. I just want you to tell God what you're going to do. You don't have to say it out loud, but just tell God what you're going to do, what you're going to do. Tell God about it right now. God, we choose to be people who act on what we hear. We don't want to hear the word of God and and not be doers of it. We choose to be doers of the word. So God, we choose to take action on what you put in our hearts. In Jesus' name. We're going to leave here different. We are leaving here different in Jesus' name. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed for just an additional moment, I'm going to ask you just to focus internally. Because uh, you might be here today and you never even, you've never really surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Um, you don't have relationship with him. And if you want to have relationship with the Jesus that we talk about, you want to make him the king of your life, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond by lifting your hand. You just need to know this. that Jesus loves you more than you can imagine. He died for you so that you can have life and life to the full. And that life can begin today. Today, it's your time to live. If you'd like to be included in our closing prayer and make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. When I count to three, I want you to lift your hand so I can connect my faith with yours so we can pray together. Will you do that? Is that the decision you need to make today? Will you lift your hand for me so I can see it? One, two, three. Lift your hand. Lift your hand for me. Today's my day. I'm receiving Jesus. Today's my day. Thank you. Here's what I'd like first to do. I'd like for everyone to please stand. And if you, if you are praying that prayer, if you're praying that prayer today, and you're meaning it for the first time, I want you to pray it out loud with me along with every other believer in here. Come on, I want you to pray this with me. Pray this, come on church. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. I believe you're the son of God. (laughs) Please forgive my sins. It's time for me to live. So I give up my past and I embrace the future that you have for me. Thank you for giving me hope. In Jesus' name. Amen. Have you discovered your street of influence? Whether it be family, government, business, arts and entertainment, faith, health and vitality, or education, head over to culturalstreets.com and discover your street today.